0: What is it that consumes us, distracts us, fulfills us, devours us, exhausts us? If we were to remove that thing, even if only for a moment, could it bring focus to our hearts? Could that time recharge us? Could it give us joy? Teach us dependence, help us worship? Could it renew intimacy? Teach us to adore? Bring contentment? Jesus went into the wilderness to fast. As he emptied himself, he was filled. If we followed his model, emptied ourselves, might we be filled too? Join us during this season of Lent as we focus on Jesus, not empty religion, not rote obedience. We deny ourselves alongside Jesus, that we might in our hearts and minds see his beauty just a little more clearly.
1: Just want to take a minute to introduce our next focus uh, during this this Lenten season. And this week we're fasting from noise so that we can draw nearer to God through just recognizing his presence and focusing on the presence of God. Uh, Illustration of this is one of the Huber family favorite activities is uh, going to air shows. Love going to air shows, just walking around the static displays and walking through the giant cargo planes on the ground, uh, but also seeing the jets that scream over your head and they're so loud you can't hear yourself think. Uh, Just rattles the teeth right from your head, it sort of feels like. Uh, Both of my kids are in the room and so I'm doing a very terrible pastor thing and throwing them under the bus by using them as an illustration. Uh, So I won't tell you which child of mine uh, it was. Uh, but I was holding her in my arms. <laughs> she was really young. It was probably her first air show. And every time a jet went screaming overhead, she threw her hands over her head and just turned her face and buried it in my chest. Uh, and it was a cool thing that, uh, you know, there, were, there was this moment where in response to all the noise, she was trying to seek security in the father. Uh, And it taught me something about that, and I think it relates well to this week, that in response to all of the noise around us, that we would seek security in our Father, that we would uh, just draw more and more into his presence. Um, Sometimes the the world around us, again, I'm not breaking any news telling you that the world is noisy. Uh, Sometimes it is so noisy that you can't hear yourself think, can't hear anything, Uh, There are other times where it might not be the volume that's loud, but just uh, the day-to-day humdrum of activity or everything that we have going on around us in the background, the same principle is true. We don't hear anything else. So let's look for ways this week to be quiet, uh, to look for ways to fast from the noise. Maybe it means a, a silent drive to work or silent time at home so that we can really hear Uh, God speak to us but also just be more and more aware of his presence let's pray God praise you we thank you uh, for your goodness and the fact that you are always near us that you are always present this week God as we just just quiet ourselves to hear more from you we look forward to the ways that you will speak to us Uh, God uh, speak often and speak clearly Uh, For we are yours. In your name we pray. Amen.
2: Well, good morning. Even before you turn and and open up your Bibles, if you're able, I'm going to have you stand. I'm going to take our passage this week and just read it and you just listen. This is Luke chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. It says this. While he was in one of the towns, that's Jesus... A man was there who had leprosy all over him. He saw Jesus, fell face down and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Reaching out his hand, Jesus touched him saying, I am willing, be made clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then he ordered him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer what Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. But the news about him spread even more and large crowds would come together to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. Yet he often withdrew to deserted places to pray. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. And as you're seated, if you have a Bible and you wanna open that passage up, we're going to look at this a little more closely in a moment. But in order to do this well today, we have to do some Old Testament work. And we need to do some tricky theology kind of work. And so here's where we're going to land. The, the end point of this today is that Jesus makes the unclean clean, the sick healthy, and the dead alive. Let's start with some Old Testament work. If you get a skin irritation or you get like a sore that shows up on your arm, your first step is probably to go to CVS or something like that look for something over the counter try that out if it doesn't work then you would go and see your doctor and if your doctor says i think you need to see a specialist they would refer you to a dermatologist take two call me in the morning and you would move on with life <clears throat> that's not how it worked if you lived In the Old Testament, it's not how it worked if you lived at the time of Jesus. And so I want you to picture the following scenario with me. You wake up one morning and there's a small spot on your forearm that kind of burns and itches. And you think to yourself, hopefully it's just a little irritated. A couple days later, it's getting red. A few days after that, it's like an open, festering wound on your arm. And you know exactly what that means you know that you need to go and see the priest. But before you go and see the priest, you take everything that you've touched over the last four or five days, your bed sheets, any of the you know, instruments you used to eat with, you take them outside and you burn them all. Because if anybody else touches them in your family, they're likely to be subjected to the same thing that you're about to be subjected to. And so once you've rid yourself of that, you walk through all your neighbors, uncertain if you're ever going to see them again, and you go and you stand before the priest, and when it's your turn, he takes a look at your sore, which is open and somewhat deep, and the hair from your arm that would normally be you know, dark colored has gone white on the inside, and he takes one look at that, and he looks at you, and he utters the word that you've been afraid of hearing for a week now. He says, you're unclean. And at that pronouncement, You don't get to go back home. You do not pass go. You do not collect $200. You walk straight back out of town because you are going to need to spend some time quarantined. Now, we kind of have some framework for that right now. But this particular quarantine was like outside of town in the wilderness. And so you get out there. And what has happened to you is that you've essentially been given a death sentence. J.C. Ryle says it this way, that leprosy was a living death which no medicine could check or stay. That pronouncement of you being unclean comes with the reality that you cannot go back home. It's practical. They don't have medicine to treat these types of skin diseases, and they're highly infectious, and so the best way... For them to deal with this was to separate individuals who had these diseases. But the reasoning is also theological, to borrow from and Duncan. The theological reason is that God can have nothing to do with that which is unclean, and He dwells among His people. And so when you're pronounced unclean by the priest, whether it's because you've got one of these skin diseases, or you've touched a corpse, or you've Um, you've got some sort of bodily discharge, you're unclean and you get separated, not just from your community so that no one else contracts what it is that you have. You get separated because God is clean and entirely holy and he can have nothing to do with that which is unclean. So you're removed from the fellowship of the Israelite people. You cannot go to the temple and worship. You cannot have fellowship with God and you're kind of left alone out there and the hope is that nature will run its course and that thing will heal. The priest who deemed you unclean can do nothing to help you. The priest who deemed you unclean cannot give you medicine to help this. You're just at the mercy of, will this or will this not clear itself up? Is this going to be some sort of mild, single spot skin irritation that give it a couple of weeks and it goes away? Or is this all the way to the other side of the leprosy spectrum, which would be like Hansen's disease? It's degenerative, does away with your feeling, eats away your skin eats away at your tissue, and ultimately would end your life. Time will tell. And that could have happened to you. That could have happened to your spouse. It could have been one of your children. might have been a grandparent. could have been the next-door neighbor. And if nature determines to, like, bring you back to life and heal you, You've got to go back and see the priest again. And so you walk yourself back into town, but you can't show up at the priest empty-handed. You've got to come with two live birds. Now, one is going to be slaughtered, and all the blood from that bird is going to be drained into a clay pot. The other one, alive, is going to be dipped into the clay pot with some other instruments, and you're going to be sprinkled seven times with the blood from your sacrifice, and the priest is going to look at you, look at your source, see that it's cleared up, and say, clean. He's going to send you home, but you can't go inside yet. You've got to stay outside of your house or your tent, depending on what era of Israel we're living in, for another seven days. And on the seventh day, you're going to shave all of your hair, head, eyebrows, arms, legs. Then you would shave your beard off, and you're going to go back to the priest, this time with two unblemished male goats, as well as a bunch of flour and some oil for a grain offering. One of those lambs, along with the grain offering, is going to be a guilt offering. The priest will offer that on your behalf. What are you guilty of? Well, you're guilty of getting sick. The second lamb is taken into a sanctuary and it's slaughtered as a sin offering. Because your uncleanness is not due to your sin. It's a reminder of sin. And so some of the blood of that second sin offering is brought back out of the sanctuary. It's rubbed on your right earlobe, your right thumb, and your right big toe. And then the priest takes some olive oil and some of your grain, and he mixes it together in his hand, and he rubs some of that on your right earlobe, your right thumb, and your right big toe. And then he takes some of it, and he wipes it on your forehead. And now atonement has been made for your sin priest will go back into the sanctuary, complete the rest of the offerings uh, there in, or at the altar, and when he's done, you're able to go home, finally back home. What for us would have been a few days of like some topical ointment or something, for you has been time out in the wilderness, one sacrifice, seven days sleeping outside of your house, and another set of sacrifices, but now you're clean. Sickness had made you literally a dead man walking. Your very life hung in the balance as you let time pass. That is how skin diseases or leprosy, which is a spectrum, was treated in Israel. You can read that. What I just walked through is Leviticus 13 and 14. So you can go and read all about how they were supposed to handle that if you want to. But then Jesus shows up. He's got an interaction with a man with leprosy. So I'm going to read this again. And this time you look at it and catch the details. While he, Jesus, was in one of the towns, not outside, he's in it. There was a man who had leprosy all over him. He saw Jesus' face and he fell down and he begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Not well, not healthy. You can make me clean. Reaching out his hand, Jesus touched him, saying, I am willing, be made clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then he ordered him to tell no one, but go, show yourself to the priests, and offer what Moses has commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. The news about him spread even more and large crowds would come together to hear him and be healed of their sicknesses. Yet he often withdrew to deserted places and prayed. If you were a Jewish individual and you were either near Jesus when this took place or you were hearing this account retold or reading about it from Luke, you would have been absolutely appalled that this man with leprosy is in town what is this guy doing he's putting all of us at risk if any of us make contact with this individual we will be unclean and so we'll have to go outside of town and do all of the sacrifices and so here's this guy totally reckless And in the event that you were ever on the outskirts of town and you saw one of these lepers who had been sent out of town, they would have to yell at you, unclean, unclean, so that you knew to steer clear. Now here's this guy who's not only in town, but now walks up to Jesus in a crowd full of people, falls down at Jesus' feet and says, not unclean, but if you are willing, you can make me clean. And as if that's not bad enough, Jesus does the absolutely unthinkable. And he reaches out and he touches this guy. Every Israelite person is screaming in that moment, no, don't do this. You are going to be unclean. How could you touch this individual? And then the remarkable happens. The holiness of Jesus makes the unclean clean. Like any other human being touches this particular person and his uncleanness makes them unclean. Jesus touches this guy and Jesus' holiness makes that man clean. It's totally unthinkable. That's not the way it's supposed to work. It's not supposed to work that... Unclean things touch clean things, and the clean thing makes the unclean thing clean. It's supposed to go the other way around. And yet, the holiness of Jesus makes this unclean man clean. When anyone else comes into the contact with the uncleanliness of a leper, or comes into contact with the thing that the unclean leper had previously touched, they become unclean. But when a leper comes into contact with the perfect holiness of Jesus, Jesus's holiness makes the leper clean. That is a big deal. Don't miss the other component of it, though. This man walks up, drops down at Jesus's feet, doesn't ask to be made healthy, asks to be made clean. Jesus reaches out and touches him saying, it's not I'm capable I am willing. So it's not just that the holiness of Jesus can make the unclean clean, it's that the compassion of Jesus makes him eager to make the unclean clean. The divinity of Jesus, his holiness, his divine perfect Nature is the son of God. The son of God from the Trinity makes it so that his holiness can take unclean things and make them clean. But it is the compassion of Jesus that makes him eager to do so. Think about those laws in Leviticus. Like We read all about all the sacrifices in Leviticus. We read about the, the regulations and all the various things that people were supposed to do. And we read them and we think, this all sounds kind of harsh. But sin is a reality in the world, and God provided the law so that people could be brought back into right relationship with him. He longs for that. So here, Old Testament, is how you can do it. It's not just that Jesus shows up and now God longs to make people clean. That's been the case all throughout the Old Testament. And the law was the means by which they did that. Now Jesus shows up, and he's the fulfillment of the law. So he reaches out and he says, "I'm willing to be clean and the unclean becomes clean." There's no amount of uncleanliness that would deter Jesus from longing to make them clean. You read throughout Leviticus 13, 14, 15, it talks about lepers, it talks about people who come into contact with dead bodies, it talks about people who have discharges, they're unclean. Well, in like a two-chapter stretch here in Luke, Jesus is going to touch a leper, cleanse a woman with a discharge, and raise a dead child. He's going to make that which is unclean, clean. And he's eager and he longs to do it. Just the passage we looked at last week, tax collectors and sinners, they're pariahs in their culture. Jesus says, follow me, and then he shows up at the party with the tax collectors and the sinners, and he's not at all worried that they're going to contaminate him. Just a real quick note about the church today before we keep going. We in the American church today are often guilty of cherishing the fact that we have a Savior who has made us clean despite our sin and yet simultaneously rejecting or keeping the unclean at arm's length. Now, those aren't people with skin diseases in our culture, but people with certain temptations, people with certain kinds of sins in their past. We push them out away from the church while we cherish a Savior who's made us all clean. And we say, we'll just kind of shout the gospel out to them and hope that they catch it and they could be made clean and then they could make their way into contact with us. I mean, think about how backwards that is from the image of Jesus. So I say this gently because there's nothing inherently wrong with any of the things that I'm about to list. But over the course of like Christian history here in America, we've gotten really big on our Christian sports leagues and Christian book clubs and Christian acting groups and Christian dance troupes and Christian coffee shops and Christian organizations and our Christian schools. And none of those in and of themselves are wrong. But if we confine ourselves to those places, who's out there reaching out to the unclean to say, there is a holy savior who can make Make you clean. Who's there? As a the body of Christ, we are today the hands and the feet of Jesus. And if he's reaching out and willing to touch those who are unclean and make them clean, brothers and sisters, you're the hands. And so we should be wise. I mean, if you've got a history of a struggle with alcoholism, the bar is not the place where you should go in order to reach out to those who have not been saved. Like, we need to exercise wisdom in that. And yet, we should not be worried about being contaminated by the sin of those who are broken. If the reason that we don't go to those places is that we're somehow afraid that the uncleanliness of someone else is going to like rub itself off on me, then we ought to get more serious about our own sanctification and walking in the power of the Holy Spirit and knowing that the Holy Spirit will help us to resist temptation. We need to get more serious about that rather than get more serious about stiff-arming those who are lost in sin. We can't make someone clean, but we can be the conduit through which the power of God flows and makes the unclean clean. We are the hands and the feet of Jesus. We are to be the ones who reach out into our society and are willing to engage with and care for those who have been written off as unclean so that a willing and a capable Savior can do what only he can do. And that's make the unclean clean. Notice, though, that Jesus just doesn't just make this man clean. Ceremonial clean, ceremonially clean. He does heal him. And so the holiness of Jesus not only makes the unclean clean, the holiness of Jesus also makes the sick healthy. The priest couldn't do that. The priest couldn't make the leprosy go away. All they could do is look at the sore and say unclean. And then when you came back and showed them that it had healed, they could say Clean. Jesus, on the other hand, makes the man clean and makes the man healthy. And then he sends him away and says, go show yourself to the priest. Offer what you're supposed to offer as a testimony for them. A testimony for the priest. So the priest would know what Jesus just did was definitive. A testimony for the rest of the Israelite community that's there because there was a law to be followed in a way that you were brought back into society. So go and show yourself and bear testimony to the fact that you are clean and the sore is gone. The leprosy is no more. It's a testimony to this man about Jesus and what he's come to do. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of the law. And so here he is upholding what the law commands by ultimately fulfilling it, but then sending the man away to still do what he was supposed to do under the law. And yet he encourages the guy not to tell anyone. This is the second time we've seen Jesus say to something. Don't don't say who I am. The first time it was to a demon. Now it's to a man who's been cleansed of his leprosy. The reason for that, in both instances, so with the demon, a demon can identify who Jesus is, but that demon does not worship Jesus. So Jesus is protecting the clarity of his message about who he is as savior. The demon isn't going to talk about what it would look like to submit to this king who has arrived and is the savior. And this individual, this man, he's got a partial idea of what Jesus has come to do. He's the bringer of cleanliness. He's the maker of health. And yet it's incomplete because this man doesn't know that Jesus has ultimately come to die on the cross for salvation. And so Jesus says, don't go and tell anyone. But what ends up happening, right? A group of people just watched a leper fall down in front of a guy and the guy touched the leper and the leper was, he- was healed. That story is gonna get out. And so it gets out and crowds start flocking to Jesus, but he doesn't wanna ride some wave of popularity to like nationalistic kind of um, fame. He's come to be the Messiah. And so he's withdrawing away from the crowds at times in order to pray. But he just made a sick man healthy and his holiness overcame the effects of brokenness there to make a man well. But it's not just that he can do that. Again, it's that he longs to. The compassion of Jesus means he's eager to make the sick healthy. Three words, I am willing. Think about all the people in chapter four when Jesus is out, kind of teaching somewhere and the sun goes down because it's on a Sabbath and people start rushing their sick family members and neighbors to Jesus. And what's he do? He touches all of them and heals them. In the rest of his ministry, he's going to heal individuals who are blind or lame, sick. He's even going to raise people who are dead and he's always willing. What are we seeing in that? We're seeing that he has the power to overcome the devastating effects of sin. We're seeing that he is willing to overcome the devastating effects of sin. We're seeing that he longs to overcome the devastating effects of sin. And I mentioned in the last passage where we saw Jesus heal that over the course of this series, we're going to have a lot of opportunities to talk about healing. And so I, w- I want to like start to wade into those waters. But this is where we need to do some tricky kind of um, nuanced theology, the reason is because the right place for us to start, if we're going to understand healing at all, is to start with some of the foundational questions. Where does sickness come from? Does God make people sick? If God is really good, why do these, ex- these illnesses exist at all? And is sickness a result of my own specific sin? Those are foundational questions, and understanding them helps us to see what Jesus is doing in these passages and also will help shed light on what healing looks like today. And so let's deal with the foundation. Sickness is a result of sin. Again, that doesn't mean that you're sick because you sinned. It means that we get sick as a consequence of the reality of sin. We're all subject to the effects of sin, sickness being one of them, in the same way that we're all subject to the effects of gravity. You could no more live in this broken world and escape the effects of sin than you could live on this planet and escape the effects of gravity. Sin and sickness were not factors in God's initial creation in Genesis 1 and 2. They break into the world due to the decision that Adam and Eve make to eat that fruit. And now they're present realities for all of humanity ever since that moment. Thank you, Adam and Eve. And so why do we get sick? We get sick because sin exists. Why do illnesses like cancer or the flu or COVID or leprosy or blindness, the common cold, chicken pox, the measles, why do those exist? Why do our bodies break down? Why do they eventually fail? Because sin exists. And those things now follow us around like a shadow, constantly present, unavoidable for humanity. And so then the question is, does God make us sick? My answer to that is, God is sovereign. And while it's complicated to draw perfect lines around that which God causes and that which God permits, and it's very difficult and complicated to draw perfect lines around what God intends to do with that which he causes and that which he permits, We can say for certain that nothing is happening in our world at any moment in any individual's life that catches God by surprise. So when we say that God is sovereign, we're not just saying that he can do all that he wills. But to borrow from John Piper, when we talk about God being sovereign, we're saying that he does do all that he decisively wills. And if you were to just take the breadth of Scripture, we see that God holds absolute sovereign sway over the wind and snow and lightning. That's the book of Job. That he holds absolute sovereign sway over frogs and gnats and flies and locusts and quail. That's the book of Exodus. That he's sovereign over fish and worms. That's the book of Jonah. That he's sovereign over sparrows and flowers and grass and the cattle on a thousand hills. Those are the Gospels. That he's sovereign over famine and the sun. You get that out of the narrative portions of the Old Testament. You read the book of Acts, you see that he's sovereign over prison doors. You see Jesus' ministry and that God is sovereign over blindness and deafness and paralysis and fever. You read the book of Proverbs and you find out that God is sovereign over travel plans and the hearts of kings and the outcomes of battles and the nations. And if we can allow for God to be sovereign over all of the wonderful parts of life, as well as the benign aspects of our lives and our world, we would also have to allow space for him to be sovereign over those things which are not so wonderful. We would have to be willing to trust that he could have good, pleasing, glorifying reasons for doing what he decisively wills. It's a mystery that's painful at times, but we cannot write off as if a sovereign God would be sovereign over all things and yet a couple of things can run out of control, out of his grasp. God is sovereign. And these are difficult questions to deal with, but I I heard someone in an interview recently say that we do theology in the light in places like church on days like this so that we can stand on it in the dark when the diagnosis comes. Ultimately, Sickness in the world is a visible reminder of sin in the world. Our sickness reminds us of the reality of the fact that we live in a broken place where sin is a reality. Our sins are a reality and sin in general is a reality. And sickness reminds us that it isn't supposed to be this way. That this is not the way God created things to be. It pushes us to think of the glory of eternity and the reality that sickness will no longer be present there. It offers us ever-present reminders that these bodies are going to fade and we are going to die And if we've placed our faith in Jesus, he's going to make us eternally well. And the memories of these broken, fading, decaying bodies will be little blips on an eternal radar of glory in the presence of the Son. Sickness offers us opportunities to share the beauty of the gospel and the truth of a Savior who is both able and willing to heal, to heal from sickness and to heal from sin. Sickness provides us chances to speak of the glorious reality that we won't have to live in relation to these things forever if we would only come to Christ. And so does God make us sick? My answer is that God is sovereign. If God is good, why does he allow sickness? Why does he allow sickness to exist in the world? My answer to that is that it's impossible for a finite creature with finite knowledge who sees a limited aspect of an eternal story to tell an infinite God with perfect knowledge who sees all of eternity in a single glance what is and what is not good. It's impossible for me with my limited view to see all the ways in which the events of history and the events of my life might be creating a good in light of eternity that far outstrips the discomfort it causes for me. Or how those things might contradict my thoughts about what is good for me. If you were reading with us in our Lenten devotional, you would have read through Psalm 119 this week. And in the middle of Psalm 119, we're reminded that God is good and that he does what is good. And so we read that theology in the light so that we can stand on it in the dark. What do Jesus' healings show us? They show us that the king holds power over the effects of the fall. They show us that he can and that he does heal. They show us that he longs to make all things new, to revert all things back to the purity of how he created them. They show us that the very heart of Jesus, the very heart of God is to restore brokenness. The holiness of Jesus can make the sick healthy. And when Jesus decisively wills to heal someone, they are healed in the gospel and in the world today. And the compassion of Jesus longs to make the sick healthy. It isn't just that he can do it, it's that he wants to. And so for a, for a time, we'll live subject to the effects of sin. And God may break through and heal at some point in your life or in the life of a family member or a dearly loved one to you, but at other times he might not. And we can trust that God in those instances is doing for our souls what is best for us in light of eternity. I was listening to a podcast recently in which Tim Keller was being interviewed. He's a pastor from New York and he's been battling through a pancreatic cancer diagnosis that he knows is going to take his life sometime soon. And in the middle of that interview, just kind of the run of the back and forth, Tim Keller makes the observation that he and his wife Kathy realized early on that what they were really fighting against was not cancer, but instead sin. And he said, not that my sin is the reason that I have this cancer or that if that I lived sinlessly, I could rid myself of this cancer. The reality is that God is doing in my final days His final preparations that I would be ready to enter into eternity. And this man, staring down the barrel of every two weeks for the rest of his life, chemotherapy treatments, says, and in his sovereignty, he has chosen cancer as that means. And he's looking forward to eternity, but he quotes John Newton. Or John Newton says our primary struggle as human beings is an inordinate attachment to the things of time. Tim Keller says one of the things that cancer has taught me is that I make too much of earth and not enough of heaven. But when I start to make enough out of heaven, I loosen my grip on the things of earth and I can appreciate them for what they are. And that would include his body and food and like sunshiny days. That which God decisively wills, he will accomplish. And we may not have all the answers to all the questions, but we have answers to the big ones, and that's that he is good and he does what is good. That ultimately sickness broke into this place as a result of sin, and now sickness pushes us to look at the cross. And anything that forces us to look to the cross is good for our souls. Because when we look at the cross, we see the place where Jesus ultimately made the unclean clean, where he ultimately made the sick healthy and where he ultimately makes the dead come alive. And it's the holiness of Jesus that makes the dead alive. This account is an early trimmer of what Jesus is going to do on the cross. This unclean, sick man has been cast as a dead man walking. Cut off from the Lord. Cut off from worship. Cut off from his family. Cut off from the community of God's people. And along comes Jesus and makes him clean. And now this man that was basically left for dead out in the wilderness has been brought back to life. Clean. Healthy. Alive. That holiness changed everything for this man it is jesus's holiness that ultimately triumphs on the cross and triumphs when he walks out of the tube and tomb and jesus is the only one who can do that ephesians chapter 2 says it this way and you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he has for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our sin. You are saved by grace. He also raises us up. With him, seated us with him in the heavens with Jesus Christ, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is a gift from God. It's the holiness of Jesus that makes the dead alive. But don't miss the fact that the compassion of Jesus means he's eager to make the dead alive. How eager is he to do that? So eager that he walked himself to the cross. Luke chapter 9, he's going to set his face toward Jerusalem. In Luke chapter 19, he's going to arrive on the outskirts of Jerusalem and then walk himself into that. And then at the end of Luke, he's going to have a cross strapped to his back and he's going to walk that thing where? Outside of town. Up on a hill, cut off from the rest of his people and in that place he's going to hoist himself up there onto the cross and he's going to heave all of your sin and all of your uncleanness and all of your brokenness up there on his shoulders and with one dying breath he's going to shout out clean for every person that comes to him and he was willing to do it not just able willing That's the heart of the Savior. And so the foundational question when it comes to healing is not, in my mind, why does God choose to heal some and not others? The foundational question when it comes to our sin and our brokenness and our need to be made clean and our need to be healed, that question is why would he choose to heal anyone? Sickness came into the world as a result of humanity's sin. The reason there's any uncleanness to talk about is because of the reality of the sin that humanity has brought upon itself. The reason we die is because humanity has chosen sin. We've contented ourselves with the half-truths and momentary pleasures of sin instead of with the eternal bliss and the perfect truth of God. And yet, he makes us clean. He heals our sickness. He brings us back to life. Why? Compassion. Mercy. Grace. Love. You're never so unclean that the compassion of Christ won't move toward you. You are never so sick or so riddled with the effects of sin that the compassion of Christ won't move toward you. You are never so dead in your sin that the compassion of Christ won't move toward you. In fact, when you read the gospels, it is our uncleanness, our sickness, our bondage to sin, our very death that compelled Christ toward us and toward the cross. He came for the sick. He says so himself. His compassion on the unclean on the sick, on the dead, took him to the cross where he became a literal corpse. The definition of unclean, the definition of sick, the definition of dead, he became those in our place that he might make us clean and well and alive. And his holiness meant that he could, his compassionate heart made him eager to do so. That is why we sing some words and some hymns maybe we just kind of gloss over. But 1905, Charles Gabriel pinned the words to the classic hymn, I stand amazed. He said this, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus, the Nazarene, and I wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. The second verse, he took my sin and my sorrow. He made them his very own. He bore that burden to Calvary and he suffered and he died alone. How marvelous, how wonderful. And my soul shall ever be how marvelous, how wonderful is my savior's love for me. In 1865, while she sat in the choir loft behind her pastor, which in her journal she said was droning on a little longer than normal. Elvina Hall flipped open the back of her hymnal and on a blank leaf of page there, she pinned the words, I hear the Savior say, thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Lord, now indeed I find thy power and thine alone can take the lepers or can cleanse the lepers' spots and melt this heart of stone. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Jesus makes the unclean clean, the sick healthy, and the dead alive. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you have chosen to make known to us the incredible realities of who you are and who Jesus is and what he has done in our place. And God, I pray that I would never lose sight, that we would never lose sight of the fact that when we read the gospels and we see people being cleansed, we see people being healed, we see people confused about the teaching of Jesus, we see people who are dead, who are made alive. God, I pray we would never lose sight of the fact that we are those people. I pray that I would never lose sight of the fact that what Jesus did for that leper, he's done for me. He's made us clean. He's made us whole. He's brought us true and everlasting life. God, in the deepest, truest spiritual sense, we have a savior who's not only capable, but willing to reach out and touch us in our brokenness and make us whole. God, I pray for those in our congregation who are dealing with difficult diagnoses. God, who have loved ones or family members or friends who are dealing with difficult health diagnoses god i pray that you would decisively will to heal each and every one of them that by your power you would reach out and touch whatever disease is inside of them god and by your holiness just rid that thing from them god if you decisively will you can absolutely do that and i pray that this morning what you have ordained in all of eternity is that our prayers would be the means by which those people are healed god but if not Would you continue to teach us in these decaying, limited, confined bodies, Lord, that this is not the way it's always supposed to be? God, would you continue to point us to the cross as we think about our sickness and see there the place where Jesus has made it possible for us to live all of eternity in a place where this will not exist anymore? God, I pray that we as a church would be people who reach out to those who need to be made clean, to those who need to be brought to life. God, would you teach us what it is to not be afraid of being contaminated by them, but instead to long to see your holiness overcome their brokenness, God. Would we be conduits for your power in that way? God, thank you for Jesus, his matchless holiness, his unrivaled compassion, God, that he has made us clean and whole and alive. We pray in his powerful name. Amen. Amen. Before you go, I've got one quick announcement. And that's that next week we are going to celebrate a number of baptisms. We haven't been able to do baptisms in a year. We have quite a few people in each service that are going to be baptized. And we want to be able to do that um, as a whole church family. And so this doesn't particularly apply to second service. But if you normally come to first or third, um, you'll register your kids like normal and check them in. But we want to be able to do those baptisms with all of our church body together. And so kindergarten through fifth graders are gonna join us in the service and watch those baptisms. You'll take kids younger than kindergarten back to their classes right away. After that, uh, when our baptisms are over, your kindergarten through fifth graders will be dismissed to their teachers out the back doors and they'll be able to go. Again, not something super relevant to second service. But if you're normally in a different service, that's the way it's gonna go. What is relevant to you in second service is that because of all of those baptisms, next week's service is likely to be a little bit longer than uh, a normal Sunday service for us. And that's because we've got a number of people who are making public professions of having been dead and now being alive. And we want to be able to celebrate each and every one of those and still worship and open up God's word together. And so I pray that you will come ready and excited to do that with us next week. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you soon. Love you guys.